0: Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breaking, a baseball news podcast that explores Major League Baseball's rumor mill and player movement through the game on the Pitcher List Podcast Network I'm Tim Jackson here with TC Zenka. TC, how are you? Man,
2: I'm good. Pitchers and catchers are reporting. Podcasters are reporting. We're all here. We're ready to go. I'm pumped. How are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm good. I, I love the note that uh, we're recording and reporting with pitchers and catchers because uh, that makes me feel like I am a world-class athlete. Oh, yeah.
2: First first day of camp. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm a little bit out of shape just like a lot of the players these days. <laughs> I'll be winded by the end of this, but I'm I'm good I'm good to go. Distinct best
1: shape of our live season, uh, oh, yeah, whatever that might look like. Um so, to get right into it, given this the fact that we are right up against pitchers and catchers reporting, it's really kind of like reliever week around major league baseball, right? Because in the last week we've gotten a total like a, an enormous blob and and slew of relievers signing with teams. It's kind of the, how the market works um a handful of them have signed in the last week i think something like close to 20 uh most of them to major league deals even the ones to minor league deals you figure they're going to compete for some sort of roster spot and it's almost like um i guess like a reliever christmas
2: so what do you make of all of the sudden reliever movement all around the league yeah it's been it's been a, bo- a blob and a slew as you say then they're all they're all signing up I think it, it you know it makes sense to bring these guys in now. A lot of them, a lot of them are going to be more impactful than we think because they are going to have jobs in the bullpens, and especially this year when we don't expect pitchers to be throwing at the same levels that they were volume wise back in 2019, you're going to see a lot of these guys find their way into important games.
1: Well, that's the very interesting thing about relievers, right? Is that we they kind of fall outside of our ability to project, especially on a year to year basis. Uh, when I when I really started the process, how many relievers had signed in the last week, legitimately the last seven or eight days? I, think I thought of this Jeff Sullivan article from 2018 on Fangraphs, where the big takeaway for me is uh, the, the final paragraph where he says, you've probably understood on some level for a while that bullpens are largely unpredictable. Teams understand that, too. At the same time, bullpens now are perhaps more important than they've ever been. And what an encouraging thought for teams on the rise. What an uncomfortable circumstance for teams at the top. So you are saying a lot of these guys are going to make their way in the high leverage situations just by the nature of the game and the nature of their rules. We know certain teams are run better than others. Uh, So we've seen, you know, like the the Cubs just signed Pedro Straub and Brandon Workman. Cam Bedrosian signed a minor league deal with the Reds. Uh, Justin Wilson with the Yankees. Yusmero Petit is back with Oakland. Sergio Romo is in Oakland. Uh, Alex Colome in Minnesota. Ken Giles is being paid to basically rehab for a year and then pitch for Seattle. But knowing how we know different teams are better at different things, are any of these moves trying to catch lightning in a bottle or are they something more?
2: I think a couple of them probably probably are. Keon Kayla jumps out going to the Padres. I mean, he's a guy who's had some quote-unquote character issues, but he throws the baseball really freaking fast. He's closed games in the past, and though we haven't seen it from him in over a year, really, he's a guy who could end up being a back-end arm for the Padres, one of one of many that they've now stockpiled back there. You know, Justin Wilson is a good pickup for the Yankees. The Yankees bullpen now looks really good from the left side. With Chapman and with Britain ahead of Wilson, you're able to really utilize that depth. You know, anything the Rays do, I feel good about. I mean, how silly is it, right, that like as Jeff Sullivan says, it's the most unpredictable part of building your team, the bullpen. You don't really know what you're going to do with it. And the Rays are like, what if the entire team were the bullpen? <laughs> Let's build our team that way. And yet it seems to work. And they're, tra- they're trading away guys left and right. Right? John Curtis just got sent somewhere. He was a big part of their, their run last year. He did, yeah. So they're going to make it work. And they they just—they picked up Colin McHugh, who's going to be another one of these multi-inning guys for them. McHugh's
1: very interesting to me. I think uh, they'll give him a bit of a Charlie Morton treatment and how they use them, where it's like, we know you're coming from a place that really knew what they were doing with pitchers in Houston. We're going to let you do that here, and we're going to let you shove here in that multi-inning capacity. It's funny to me that you mentioned how the Yankees stack up now on the left side. You have Britton and Chapman, really, for the later innings, and probably Wilson for everything in between. Them and the starters for lefties, and I think it's almost it's interesting to see how the Yanks prepare for that. In the sense that they've had an they've had an amazing bullpen for like 20 years. It helps when you have Mariano Rivera and, and Chapman to follow him up. But I don't think they get there if they don't make a move like signing Justin Wilson in this context. I don't think they can push through the AL East when it's been really tough at times if they don't make this kind of move.
2: Yeah, I mean the the depth is more important than ever. I mean you need a lot of guys back there. That's just kind of the the name of the game when it comes to pitching. Is you have to have just a ton of guys who are going to be capable of coming in.
1: And that's kind of where the Padres are too. You mentioned that they're stacking the back end of their bullpen. So you've got Drew Pomeranz, you've got Emilio Pagan, Mark Melanson, Pierce Johnson, Matt Strom, who is near and dear to my heart. I don't know why. He's just one of those guys to me. He's a lot of fun. But uh, now Keila joins them. Tim Hill with all sorts of funk. You have all these guys that, are, that have experience in a capacity of roles. It is interesting to see, I guess, teams pushing toward the top of those five that are adamantly trying to compete right now. Three of them are really adding bullpen pieces and and like the Rays even. They constantly seem to have a 40-man crunch and they're just constantly pulling up a new John Curtis all the time.
2: Yeah, I put the, the A's in that category too. I mean, they, you know, picked up another pair of soft tossers in and, and Romo and, and Yusumara Petit who's been there for a number of years and always seems to do fine. You know, they're a team that seems to just kind of make guys work in that ballpark. You get guys who can who pitch to contact and get the ball in the air and you know the Mike fires types and they can really play to their strengths there. And they just kind of just kind of put it together and build the team on the fly and make it work and see what's working and what's not and make adjustments as they go. I guess that
1: if we zoom out for a moment, we can kind of see all of these not all of these teams, but specifically the Yankees, the Rays the A's playing to a certain strength. The Yankees want to go into it with verified depth. The Rays want to go into it being able to manipulate who does what and when. The A's are using things like Yusmero Petit and his
2: invisible and, uh, you know, deception out of these guys. The uh, the Cubs, by getting Pedro Strope and Jake Arrieta on the same day, playing to their strengths. Nostalgia. <laughs>
1: I did not realize that that uh, they signed the same day. That's fun. I was going to ask you, how do you feel about
2: Arietta joining
1: the Cubs again?
2: I love it. Bring them back. Bring them both back. Worked once. Why not again? I, I love watching Arietta pitch. He's one of my favorite guys to watch pitch. I mean, I don't know. My hopes are pretty low for the Cubs anyhow, so I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> if, if the hopes are low, we might as well raise the nostalgia. Exactly.
1: So we look at the... Broader scope of baseball here as we've gotten into relievers uh, rejoining or gaining a new team here to add to their uh, Edwin Jackson-like roster collection. Some of them we take a, a step away from that. We move toward arbitration cases. The thing about arbitration cases that is fascinating to me is that they are inherently contentious, right? They are teams actively trying to tell a player he kind of stinks. Actually, like we we want you, but also you're not as good as you think you are. That's a very strange message. And we got uh, some results over the last week or so. Dansby Swanson took an L with Atlanta. Jack Flaherty won against the Cardinals and adamantly celebrated on Twitter. Big win. Big win. The Dodgers avoided it with Austin Barnes by extending him. Ryan Yarbrough lost with the Rays. Mike Soroka won with Atlanta again. Do you think any of these cases could be especially harmful in the team's relationship with the players? Even Atlanta, they're hopping
2: in with two of these guys who seem pretty important to their long term outlook. Yeah, they do. And it's just just hard to tell. I mean, with Jack Flaherty, he's so antagonistic about the process and rightly so it feels a little bit like there's no real way to win that he's going to he's going to free agency as soon as he can you just got to kind of ride it out with him as best you can and hope he returns to the the guy he was in 2019 anyhow but for some of these others i mean the was in a weird situation because he's coming off he had a monster year and then he had an injury riddled year and so it's he's a guy that's a little bit tough to gauge his value swanson kind of a similar thing where 2020 was a much bigger year for him than he had in the past, but because of the shortened season. So these guys were, it's a little bit harder to, to gauge their value. It kind of makes sense to go to arbitration. Yarborough is kind of the interesting one to me because the Rays, the Rays don't win arbitration cases typically. They they lose these things. This is something that the Rays aren't that good at because they are always trying to undervalue everybody, right? And so, like, they're trying to get away with underpaying guys a little bit. But they win this case against Yarborough, and he is one of these kind of anti, kind of going against the grain kind of guys, right? He throws, he's a softer tosser, looks to get the ball on the ground. And I don't know if that's going to be something that, as teams are more and more so looking for affordable options, if, Seeing that those guys are undervalued in arbitration as well, if that's gonna, if that would potentially play a play a role in, in roster building or not, the, the arbitration process is bizarre, and it's it makes sense that not that many guys get there every year, right? Yeah, something I guess everyone wants to avoid as much as they can,
1: and then when teams can it feels like I think antagonistic was an interesting word choice for Flaherty, but also like of course, like why wouldn't he be the whole the whole situation seems kind of volatile. Uh, and I think that it falls in line uh, that, you know, each each side wants as much as they can get, and it just means the exact opposite for, for the different parties. Uh, Yarbrough is also an interesting case for me too. Uh, so picture list friend Yancey Eaton, who if you don't follow on Twitter is a delight, at Yancey Eaton, uh, retweeted. He also noted Rays fan, Yancey Eaton, retweeted uh, somebody, a woman named Andrea, breaking down the case for Yarbrough. Uh, and she is at Scout Girl Report on Twitter. And in this two minute video, Andrea goes through this showing how Yarbrough maybe overshot what he was asking for. It's not that the Rays nailed it this time so much as it was maybe Yarbrough looking for uh, a little more based on what he had done to this point in his career. His comparables are because of how the Rays use pitchers, they kind of put him in a weird middle ground between relievers and starters between, you know, what we're going to call a reliever, a reliever and a, a bulk guy. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy to see how that plays out. And I'm trying to pull up the brand spanking new data on PitcherList, uh, which is phenomenal. If, if you guys have not had the chance, check it out. All of the data we've got on there, some stuff you've seen elsewhere, but really it's a lot of brand new stuff uh, from MLB Inside Edge that is really putting a nice perspective on the game. I
2: haven't actually looked at the new stuff yet. Is it cool?
1: It's really cool. Just like two-strike chase percentage, things like that. Things where it's like with Baseball Savant, you'd have to put in like a, you'd have to click through their their interface a ton of different times. And it's like, it's just right there for us. Oh, nice. The thing with Yarbrough and some of the things you can learn with the new insights provided by the data on PitcherList that launched with 6.0 Things about how he gets his strikes, how he gets his outs. He puts guys away by getting them to chase out of the zone with two strikes. Now, whether or not that is like a year-over-year skill is another matter, but he did that better than everybody in baseball last year except Aaron Nola. So that's that's kind of a fascinating angle to consider for what he brings to the table and, and how he kind of puts it all together. And yet it's not something that arbiters are looking at, right? which brings me I guess to the next point that the arbitration process is one of the uh, let's say finer details of baseball that is still living in the past. It's pretty archaic right they' they're looking at things like wins. they're looking at things like just counting stats that like don't show any in there they've been there for years
2: It's like the like the night from from uh, Indiana Jones at the end of Holy Grail' <laughs> Just waiting for the next guy. <laughs>
1: Every verdict comes down to (laughs) he chose poorly. And it's just a matter of if it's said about the team or the player. Some guys are beyond arbitration or have avoided it through being released. Uh, A couple names spring to mind. One is James Paxton back with Seattle. It's a one-year deal worth at least eight and a half million dollars. It could be up to 10. The structure of it makes that pretty attainable. What are the odds he's traded mid-season? Because he's He's, it's a one-year deal. He has not been super healthy the last two years. He's made like thirty starts, right, for the Yankees. At this point, he's thirty-two, and that's not really where the Mariners are. I really so don't likely, think that's the plan. What's the likelihood that he's traded I mean, if he's doing. As you well said, the, the, the
2: um, incentives in the contract are very uh, achievable. It's seven hundred fifty thousand for the for ten games for appearing in ten games, and then the other seven hundred fifty thousand for twenty games. That's not a given for Paxton. Before, I mean, made five starts last year. Four years before that, it was 29, 28, 24, and 20. So he's had a ton of injuries, but they've all been relatively ticky-tack. The Mariners have said that they were going with this six-man rotation. That should actually be a benefit to him and help him reach those those benchmarks. If he wanted to be with a contender, he could be with a contender. It's, I have to figure that he's, that he's back there because he's comfortable there and because he wants to, that he thinks it's the best way to put himself in a good position for next year's free agency. It'll certainly be within the Mariners' rights to move him if he's doing well, and it's something that they'll probably have to consider. I think they're a little bit of a sleeper in the West. I don't think they'll get there this year. They are one of the teams that could pop up and contend there. That division's a little bit weird this year. But I really like it as a move for them and for Paxton. I mean... If he's comfortable there, what better place to rebuild your value, right?
1: That feels like a big deal, right? The idea that you haven't really been able to stay right the last couple of years, come back to somewhere you're familiar, come back to a place where you've gotten it done before, where you pretty much made your name, and do it again. You mentioned his his injuries seem kind of ticky-tack. What does that look like to you? Because in my head, there's always a debate about whether a guy is... Injury prone, if he has a repeated injury,
2: or if he seems to kind of have these—he seems like uh, he's injury prone, right? He's a big dude. He looks like a like a center in basketball, where he's kind of big and lumbering. You just kind of feel like there's something about that body where it's not supposed to move exactly in the way that it's moving for him to be an effective pitcher. He's had injuries with his his calves, his finger, his his back. The back is the one that worries me the most. Pretty much injured every part of his body that you can injure while still making it back to pitch. I mean. Throwaway 2020 and his F 4 numbers the four years prior, 3.5, 3.7, 4.4, 3.6. That guy is injury prone. He undoubtedly is, and yet he's he's managed to maintain a high level of productivity while almost never throwing more than 150 innings.
1: That's kind of fascinating to to take that step back and look at. Well, if you want to say he's injury prone, he's still been awesome. So what can you do with those 150 innings? And like if a lot of guys get to 150 innings, it feels like it could be a big deal this year just because of the nature of what it is to ramp up and pitch for a full season. You mentioned they're going to the six man rotation. There are other teams thinking about it too. We're probably going to see a few of them just to see what happens. So really, how can you maximize one year of James Paxton? And if you do, it's probably going to be great. So I think it's going to work out for the Mariners one way or the other. It's, it seems pretty low risk. It's
2: to be in a rotation with the dude he was traded for. Like, how often does that happen? That's pretty cool. Like Him and Justice Sheffield. That is a lot of
1: fun. That's going to be a lot of fun. I didn't even consider the the fact that they are going to be together after
2: being traded for each other. One of the the bromances to watch in MLB this season. It's going to be a good one. I'm, I'm excited to see them yucking it up in the dugout. Another interesting signing.
1: Interesting is the the key word today, if this were Sesame Street. We're we're spelling that one out here at the end. CJ Crone goes to the Colorado Rockies on a minor league deal. So sure, it's a minor league deal, but also it's the Rockies. And we can almost assume that they're going to work him into the lineup somehow because they always seem to be able to not play a younger player that could stuff at any given position so uh crone is slotted in for first base now as a non-roster invitee how do you see cj crone playing out for the rockies given that the way his seasons have played out he did not have a good sprint last year he only got in the 13 games before that though 125 140 100 with the rays uh and, and twins and angels and reliably put up 25 home run pace 20 home run pace didn't strike out too much was able to take a few walks hit for a, a respectable average how do you see cj crone shaping up for the
2: rockies and whatever they turn out to be this he year? should be able to totally mash there i mean he's a 110 wrc plus hitter for his career he's been over that 100 mark i think every season except for maybe his last season with the with the angels where i think he was around 98 or so i mean he's Dude can hit. He's repeatedly been able to hit. It's just the only issue with Crone is that his skill set isn't valued as much as it used to be. But his power is for real. He's a 200 plus ISO guy. He doesn't take a ton of walks, and that's the that's the knock on on his batting profile probably. And and the other thing is just that there's not as much margin for error with him, right? And he if he's he's not adding much value on the bases, he's not adding value as a defender. So if his bat slips at all, you're in trouble. But at in, in course Field, you kind of mitigate some of that risk, right? He, I, mean, I would think
1: so. I mean, he's got to play over Josh Fuentes and Ian Desmond. And at this point, I think he can manage that. It's also kind of a, a nice parallel or maybe a, a juxtaposition with the Rockies and the Rays here. We're talking about how the Rays will stack up these dudes you've never heard of and mow you down, and they can do it with low pedigree, high pedigree, whatever. And then you're talking about how CJ Cron's skill set is not as valued around the game right now. And the Rockies have like the smallest analytics staff in all of baseball. So I wonder how that kind of played into things. I wonder if that's going to help CJ Crone find a job. I mean, he's 32 or he'll play this year at 32. He's been DFA'd by the Rays after a really respectable year. He didn't stick with the Twins after a really respectable year. And then it just didn't work with Detroit last year. Like, could the Rockies be giving CJ Crone
2: a job here that he has not had before? Sure. Why not? I mean, if nothing else, it's the most depressing positional battle in all of baseball, probably. (laughs) You have Ian Desmond, CJ Crone, who's been DFA'd three years in a row, and Nolan Arenado's cousin. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> he was just left behind on the team. That's a whew, that's a, that's a bummer of a positional battle. But yeah, uh, I don't see any reason why crone shouldn't become the everyday guy there. I mean, but to your point, the Rockies are doing things differently than. Every other team, and that they're not looking at the same. They're like it's like an arbitration panel running a team, right? They're not looking <laughs> at the same the same numbers that the rest of us are looking at. Ownership and Jeff Breidich, the the GM, they seem to really think they have a team that can be decent still, which is insane. The the I think what was it the Picota the Fangraphs projections have them as easily the worst team in baseball. I think they're there. It's I think
1: Fangraphs had them with the Orioles at like a fraction of a fraction chance of going in and. Uh, I don't think Pakoda likes them much better. And yeah, it's kind of hard to see why you would. And we feel for you, Rockies fans. We really do. Uh, TC and I have watched some bad baseball. We've we've watched the Cubs <laughs> and the Phillies growing up. And our laughs aren't at you, we promise.
2: But Crohn should be fun. I mean, Crown's going to, if they let him play every day, he'll hit, you know, he could hit 35, 40 homers. Yeah, it'll be
1: kind of interesting to see how the upside plays with him. How har- How far he can really take it. Playing in the cores and, and letting his skill set kind of just run wild for the first time. Now that we've considered the CJ Crones of the world, the James Packtons, as signings who kind of pique a, a distinct interest in the last uh, week or so, we've also gone through these relievers and some of the ARB cases, how that might shape teams moving forward. How would you rate, or what would you rate as the best move this offseason?
2: I mean, there have been a lot of really good moves, and it's hard to not put the Francisco Lindor move front and center there. The the move I like the most, or the move that I think maybe is maybe the most interesting is is the com- combination of Angelton Simmons and, and Nelson Cruz to the Twins. Are they not just the perfect little like banjo kazooie of a of a two man uh, player there? Like they're the exact inverse of each other, and together they should be kind of perfect for that roster. Like Jorge Polanco is better off moving down the the defensive spectrum to second. Cruz has been 163 WRC plus guy for the last two years. I don't care that he's 41, like he should mash again. I love Simmons in that roster. It's like he he probably won't hit very much ever again, but he really doesn't have to on that roster. All he has to do is get his ankle healthy enough so that he can be 90% of the defender that he was, you know, two, three years ago.
1: 90% of what he was two, three years ago is still going to be like 130% better than what a lot of guys could have been putting out. So it definitely fills a big... He he fills the big space there in the middle of the infield if he's back healthy, and it's interesting to th- to think of uh, to think of him as the inverse of Cruz, who even if he does fall off, like what does falling off of a 140 WRC plus look like?
2: I have no idea. I mean, that's the thing is like, how far could he possibly fall? I mean, two years ago he's been 160s, 130 for his first career.
1: Yeah, it feels inevitable that he's going to ensure that the the Bomba squad out there sticks around, right? Uh, so even on that point, like. Do you really see it it's just a two-horse race out
2: in the AL Central, right? It's just it's just the twins and the White Sox. It has to be, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, the Indians actually I think aren't gonna be as bad as people think they are. Rosario is actually kind of a good fit for that roster and their starting staff, I think, is gonna be is gonna kind of pick up a lot of the slack. But they're they're such a bummer that I kinda hope that they don't do that well, and the Royals are actually better than than we think as well. But but yeah, to your point, it's it's the White Sox and the and the Twins that we're really looking at there. The thing about Cleveland that gets me is that
1: they you mentioned the Lindor trade as one of the best moves of the year, and I I, mean, I thought like oh for who, and I was like well obviously it's it's New York, right? It's the Mets. But the way that they come out of that deal, to me, they look like a team that's willing to sit at the little kids' table at the holidays. Just because, like, they're like, ah, oh, this is fine. I can just reach over and grab all the stuff off of the big kids' table, uh, because they're gonna get, the, yeah. the, they're gonna get the profit shares. They're gonna get all the bottom line things on the financial side. Where it's like,
2: yeah, eighty-two games is great. We love eighty-two wins. Yeah, I mean, they're one of these teams that for years has had like an obvious hole. They don't have outfielders. Just for years, they've just we're not gonna get outfielders. We just we don't do outfielders. We're gonna have all-world starting staffs. So we're gonna develop pitchers better than anyone which is the hardest thing to do. And one of the easiest things to do, which is get productive outfielders. We're just going to not do that for some reason. That's just inexplicable. Like why can't the Indians get an above average outfielder? Like one, you get three shots, get, you know, get one. And it's, you know, the the thing with that is I think
1: Rosario could be the first outfielder for them in like 20 plus years to have 24 home runs or something. Just something that like, you think (laughs) about the power numbers we've seen in the last decade up and down, like just incredible to really consider that. For me, I think I'm going kind of chalk and maybe this is kind of cheating. I love the idea of the Blake Snell trade for Luis Patino and uh, Francisco Mejia between San Diego and Tampa, mostly just from an entertainment standpoint, right? Like you think the Padres are going like they clearly bulked up that rotation. They added him. They added Darvish. uh, They had they added Clevenger, who won't pitch this year. Who am I missing?
2: Uh, Musgrove. Yes, Joe Joe Musgrove.
1: And see, this is the point. Like they're adding so many quality people that it's like, wait, who was it? Yeah. It was this one and this one. I love it just from a, uh, an entertainment standpoint. I think that you're going to see all of these players do interesting things. Mejia is an interesting wild card because San Diego is pretty good at, at development. They've they've worked out guys who have turned into stars. They've worked out guys who have turned into good bit players. And they couldn't quite get it to work with him. So I'm kind of curious how the Rays will make it work with him as whatever position he ends up being and if they can get the bat working because it's almost like if you can get him to into a position, maybe the bat comes along just out of comfort. Uh, meanwhile, Patino is awesome. He's just electric. He's a blast to watch. A lot of these guys are really fun to watch. And I think seeing two teams who are trying to win even though they're doing it in really different ways, trading with each other, it's like, oh man, like what an exciting concept
2: for the game. Yeah, I mean, I I do like this deal. I like it for Snell as a person that he gets to go and give it a shot, where he gets to actually stay in games the third time through the order. But honestly, I love it for the Rays as much as I like it for the for the Padres, and maybe more so. I mean, I wrote about this on Pitcher List that this deal to me is eerily similar to the Cubs trading for Jose Quintana. In the middle of 2017, Quintana, when the Cubs got him, he was a bona fide ace. He was better than Snell is now. And this that's kind of the word of warning to, to Padres fans. like We don't know what's going to happen to Snell over the next couple of years. He's going to continue to be cheap. And as we saw for Quintana for the Cubs, he continued to be cheap. He continued to be fine. But he wasn't the dominant force that that he was with the White Sox. Snell's coming up on his 30s. He's, he's a year younger than Quintana was when he was moved I think Snell's going to be fine, but also, you know, there's a reason the Rays haven't been pitching him three, three times through the order. It remains to be seen whether or not that's going to how that's going to affect him. It's it's not a slam dunk. It's not a slam dunk for the for the Padres. It's a good move, and it may all the other moves combined make it a great move because you do need that kind of depth. You know, the Musgroves and Musgrove and Darvish and, and Clevenger and just adding everybody to Mackenzie Gore is an insane amount of depth. But it's also just what you need to compete nowadays. For the Rays, the Rays got a ton back in this deal. Like I know they got slammed at first, but they got they got a lot. I mean, Patino, like you said, he shoves. He's he's a top fifteen prospect in baseball. Blake Hunt looks good. He was a guy who should have been a first rounder. And Mejia is, I don't know what to make of him. the The Rays are terrible at developing catchers. The Rays don't develop catchers, and they don't develop. Like They want guys who can manage a game. That's all they want out of their catchers, right? There's a reason that they've been comfortable with Mike Zunino over the, over the years. Right. right? There's a reason they've been comfortable with not filling out the catcher spot. I mean, I don't know what they think of him. If they think he's going to be a DH or a part-time catcher, or if they think that they can make it work for him back there. He's got an arm, but I don't know if he's going to stick a catcher or not. I mean, regardless, that part to me is like not even the piece that that matters the most i mean the rays got a ton back they got more than the white Sox got back for for cantana back in the day and that return we think of as being like monumental
1: yeah and that's that's i think what makes it really fun is that a guy like mejia can be in the deal and he is just like hey what's that about and it's almost like hey that'll be fun to follow that one uh what about the worst deal though because that really paints a different picture for any team compared to what we just talked about
2: yeah well i mean you talked about it right you 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 and I know that you don't, you don't like this deal for, for Cleveland, right? Lindor trading Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. I mean, trading him trading in both in the same deal was a real gut punch.
1: Yeah. It's an ultimate bummer to me, I think, especially as Carrasco was about to get 10 and five, right? It's like, I guess I'm looking at that deal too, just from like a, it's an unsavory trade for me. <laughs> like they come out. Okay. They probably got a bunch of guys. One of them will turn into a 50 and a semi-regular and yeah, like it, It'll work out for them in the way they want it to work out, which I guess you could argue makes it good for them, but not fun for me as a viewer, objectively. So that that was kind of a bummer. Uh, and even on that note, like we just kind of talked up the Padres for going for it, and in the meantime, they signed Hasan Kim from the KBO, who was awesome when we did those KBO write-ups at Pitcher List. I loved tracking him. I loved seeing the kinds of games he put up. I loved watching his highlights. I loved catching the game the next day with him. He was so much fun. But I don't know what he does with the Padres, and I don't know if they know, right? Like, they seem to be leaving it very open in terms of where he plays, where he starts, who he fills in for, how much he plays on a regular basis. And as much as it's a good idea to gather all this depth, right? We've talked about that through this whole episode. As much as we talk about the depth, I feel like you have to have an idea of how you're going to use it instead of just letting us say, well, the season
2: will tell us. It's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I looked at this, I looked at the jerks and profile move as, as a move that I didn't like at first. But the more I looked at it, the more I did kind of think, I think there's enough room for all of them. I mean, right at the start, you pencil in, you know, Cronenworth at second. And. Profar is going to get a lot of time in left, which is where you want him probably. Haseon Kim, I don't know where he finds the space, but I think I think there's going to be a bats for him. I think he'll get a lot of time at second. I think they'll be comfortable sitting sitting Will Myers a fair amount. They'll be comfortable sitting Eric Hosmer from time to time against lefties, and I think there's going to be I think there's going to be space. I don't know I don't know exactly how it works out, but I do think that there will be plenty of space for for Kim there.
1: I think it can work. I think I, I I guess it's not that I feel it's a bad move. It's that I'm not as comfortable with it as I'd like to be because it's like, yeah, who does sit? Maybe they do sit Myers more. Maybe they're not uh, as full into giving Jay Cronenworth a playing time. Maybe there is enough at bats to go around his Kim's projections on zips are crazy. Like all-star caliber level player, like right away, they are crazy. Uh, so if you have a moment you need to maybe sell yourself on him as a player and coming stateside, check those out. Uh, but what about you in terms of this worst move or quote-unquote worst move? How do you see it shaking out? What do you feel it is?
2: It's hard to really hammer a lot of moves because for the most part, teams that are making additions, I'm glad to see anybody making additions, right? Like so many teams are sitting back. The Cubs payroll is down to 140. The Indians payroll is down to, you know, 35 or something like so any any team making moves I'm, I'm glad for but the move that I didn't love really is I, I keep going back to James McCann to the Mets and the the real reason I don't like it is just because of what opportunities they left on the table I mean, by not by bringing McCann in right away and locking in on him they left really no competition for Real Muto and they basically they basically forced Real Muto to go back to the Phillies because ultimately there weren't other teams really bidding on him and if the Mets had just kind of held on for a little bit and waited to see how the market played itself out. I mean it's a gamble, but McCann is 30. They've given him they've got him blocked in for four years now. You really want to make sure you have the right guy at catcher. I don't know for sure that McCann is the right guy. I'm not I don't I'm not sure that he's not, but I know that Ray Muto is and I know that he's gonna be an all star continue moving forward. And it would have been a lot better to have Stolen him from the Phillies than to have, you know, put an inferior catcher in his spot and then sent Real Muto back to the Phillies. I just think that the swing of that move hurts.
1: The thing with they're also the same age, right? Like they're, they're going to be, they could be on really similar curves. But if Real Muto is starting from a higher point, he's going to come, maybe, I mean, if things all work out linearly, which is a big if, but you could see them on the downside where Real Muto is still the better guy. Uh, And it's interesting. You think of it as a swing from wins, just from one team to the other within the division. How much does that really uh, improve the Mets standing? And the thing about that deal that sticks out is a lot of people, when it came through, they're like, oh, they're going to look at Bauer. They're going to look at Springer. They're going to lock into those guys because they just saved money A catcher. Real Muto is not that great. Whatever. He's asking for too much. Let's get Springer. Let's get Bauer. Let's really power up this team. And then it didn't happen. So it almost—it's—I think it makes it that much tougher to to swallow that pill, and uh, I guess I don't know. Lindor and Carrasco are good sugars. <laughs> well, that's,
2: that's true. I mean, they're like any offseason that starts with Lindor and Cookie Carrasco, you're doing okay. But that's the thing that ultimately smarts is because you look at Realmuto and McCann. The reason you want McCann is because he costs so much less. He costs—I don't know what is it—thirteen million less per year, twelve million less per year, something like that, which you can really sell yourself on if you're using that money to go out and really add value elsewhere but since they came up empty on Springer and they came up empty on Bauer I'm not sure they found a better place to really s- spend that money they, s- they clearly still have the money ready to spend because they they missed out on Bauer last week and they haven't found another way another way to spend that money so I don't know I think maybe they just got a little skittish I mean their front office has been clearly all over the place for all the wrong reasons and you know maybe they just thought it was the catcher position was too important and they wanted to lock somebody in and make sure they got one of those two guys. Cause you know, in their defense it looked like there was going to be a more robust market for Real Muto, but there, there just wasn't ultimately.
1: In their defense, it's uh, a curious phrase to, to consider with the Mets, right? <laughs> when we've got that long-term history of how their moves haven't worked out. Uh But I could see what you're saying in terms of they look to make a distinct move. They did it. And uh, maybe it had some unintended consequences for, for where the rest of the market went or the moves they could or couldn't pull off. So given that all of these moves have been made this off season with the intention of actually playing a full schedule as a final question here, what percent of games do you think could be delayed for COVID reasons this summer? Cause even as guys have reported today, we've gotten some positive cases rolling in through a bunch of orgs.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, clearly going to be an issue it's not it's not something that's that's going to be solved at the start of the season i don't think there'll be quite as many games uh delayed as we think i mean i don't know what the percent was last year do you know what the percent was last year of of games that we had delayed or missed it looked like
1: 43 total games postponed due to positive covid cases uh, that seems light. I don't know that that's accurate.
2: Forty three would be very um, light, but it makes a certain amount of sense because he was a couple weeks for the Cardinals and it was yeah. a couple weeks for the Marlins. Yeah. I mean, and that's really what we're talking about. Those is those those real outbreaks. I mean, I'm not sure we're going to have quite as many of those. I think we'll be really on the lookout for, hopefully, being able to kind of stymie those situations before they happen. And there will no doubt be positive cases. That's something that's going to happen. The hope is that you don't have quite so many of those outbreaks where you have to kind of shut down the roster. You know, that said, there's still going to be guys who are missing, missing time because of positive tests. And because they, you know, it's going to be something that happens. It's going to be an un- like, no doubt an unfortunate part of the season.
1: Yeah. And it's almost like my, my big concern would be how players come back. Right. We're seeing it with NBA uh, players right now where guys are coming back and, explicitly stating they're having a hard time getting up and down the court and baseball doesn't require that that specific energy but it requires a lot of energy to play the full season to play the full games and i'm curious to see how that shakes out uh as as a quick quick bit of math it looks like just over two percent of games had to be postponed last year so do you see it on a similar scale this year, or do you see it less?
2: I mean, than no, that? I think that sounds about right. It's I think it's that or higher I mean, because you're going to have so many more games as well. You're going to have more travel. They're not doing the. They're not keeping teams quite so tight as they were last year, playing only their, their regional mates. I mean, they're going to be fans that in this year, there are more risks and it's a longer season. I mean, I know that there's the COVID situation is better now than it was then because we do have the vaccine that's starting to circulate, but it's not going to be. Uh, we're not going to be done with it by the time the season starts, and it's going to be a long season. It's going to be something that we that the league continues to deal with.
1: Yeah, we might be reaching a level of comfort by the time October comes around, you know, when the playoffs hit. And just for points of reference, the same percentage of games that would be delayed as last year, it, it, it would mean 111, 112 games oof, are postponed uh, because of COVID reasons this year. So it's interesting to consider that in terms of, again, the, the big picture and how these teams stacking up depth were looking to build their, their org up a little bit. So that'll do it for us this week here at Breaking a Baseball News
2: Podcast. Before we all sign off, TC, where can we find you? Oh, look for my writing at MLB Trade Rumors and at picture List. You can find me at, on Twitter at TC, Z-E-N-C-K-A. That's at TC Zanka.
1: And you can find me at PitcherList. You can find me at Baseball Prospectus. You can find me on Twitter at Tim Jackson Says. Again, that'll do it for us. We can't wait to be with you all again next week. See you then, everybody.